Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Jamie Smith. I cover Premier League football, European football for Omnisport News. You can follow me on Twitter at Jamie Smith Sports, and I'm here today to talk about Burnley. Hi, I'm Sam Cox. Uh, I write for Santon Fan website, Fresh Saints, and you can find me at Mr. Sam E. Cox on Twitter, and I'm here tonight to talk about Southampton. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, Jamie, for returning, and Sam on his uh, full debut. Of course, we did a Southampton uh, segment when Hassan Hodel was hired, but we'll get to that later. We're going to start with a different manager. Um, obviously, Manchester City went today. Sorry, Sam, on your debut. Um, <laughs> but before this, in the press conference, after their recent defeats, he mentioned that he would always stick with his philosophy rather than adopting a different tactic. This is in response to a question about whether he would set up more defensively after those previous losses. And he basically responded by saying no. He, he would always stick with his tactics regardless of the results or form or anything like that. So my question for you first is, do you guys agree with that mindset that it's always worth sacrificing some short-term goals while looking at the the large picture? I think first and foremost for this, City knew exactly what they were getting into when they appointed Guardiola. And you, you have to take the rough with the smooth a little bit. When they appointed the guys above Guardiola to start with, it was obvious that they wanted to pursue this sort of Barcelona model. They wanted that sort of style of play. Everything was set up to bring Pep to the club. Pep obviously delivered the Premier League title in his second season at the club. This season, it's been a bit stickier. Um, But I always find it fascinating when people talk about changing a philosophy after a couple of bad results. That's not how a philosophy works. You can't just get rid of it because <laughs> things have gone slightly wrong. Um, I think I think in, in football these days, you do need to be flexible sometimes, and sometimes you need to maybe do things a little bit more different. But I think Guardiola is so set in the way that he thinks football should be played, the way that he's built City to play a certain way, um, I'm not sure that they have the tools to do it a different way. Um, suggestions that they should try and be more defensive. I don't know if that really stacks up. The couple of defeats that they had, Fernandinho wasn't playing. Obviously, there's more factors at play, but the fact that Fernandinho wasn't there seems to be a crucial one for me. He makes mm-hmm. that team tick. He shields the defence when he's not there. They don't really have a deputy after failing to sign Jorginho, obviously, he went to Chelsea instead. They don't really have anyone who can fill in to a, certain, to a decent enough standard. They've tried Delft there, they've tried Stones there. It's not really worked. Um, David Silver, I think, missed one of the games as well. Kevin De Bruyne's not really fully fit yet. So I think it's more a case of a lot of their stronger midfielders haven't really been available for the sticky spell rather than it being a, a real tactical and, philosoph- and ph- philosophy type issue right now yeah I think I think you probably hit the nail on the head there I think the questions would always get asked after a couple of sticky results as you say but the philosophy of Pep Guardiola has always has always brought success wherever he's been and in my opinion it was a slight overreaction yes I mean looking at City's fixtures they shouldn't be losing to, to Crystal Palace at home but in the Premier League we all know that that the Premier League brings up results quite like that and it and it's renowned for doing so and that's why it's probably the most watched league in the world. So yeah, I think it ha- had Pep Guardiola not had the success that he already had then then you can probably start questioning and pointing fingers about changing his model but I think last season they they smashed the points record 100 points and I think it was just a bit of an overreaction because 
I think if you, their greatest strength is going forward and they've got the tools, as you say, in terms of the forward players and they've got a great um, great depth of forward players. I mean, looking at tapping into today's, today's result, I mean, they brought on from the bench Sane and Jesus. I mean, they're two players which are probably getting 18 of the every other squad in the Premier League starting 11. So, I, I I don't really agree with the fact that people are starting to question Guardiola's philosophy and, and suggesting that they should become more defensive. Yeah, bringing up the attack, it, I think, is a very good point as well because in that same press conference, they asked what should he be doing when he's up 1-0 and he said score again and then score again, um, which really does, for those that don't know, highlight kind of his mentality as a manager. And I, I do agree. I certainly don't know as much about uh, football as, um, I don't know, a small appendage on Pep Guardiola. You can pick the one uh, that you want. Um, wow. But I will say, <laughs> hey, I didn't say, I didn't think it. I implied that you were thinking it. Well, um, <laughs> I was thinking it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I did want to bring up, and this is a story I've told many times on this podcast, and I thought I'd never have to again once Wenger was finally uh, departing from Arsenal, but there was a match uh, right during that Gareth Bale season where he was hitting that that kind of top stride. Um, and Arsene Wenger was asked if he would change the way he was setting up to deal with a threat like Gareth Bale. And he said no. And then Bale had two goals and, and won the match. And it kind of felt like this moment that maybe the game had just passed him. And I, I'm in no way implying that that's where Guardiola is. But that is the fate of most managers that are wholly dedicated to one style or one philosophy. Is eventually it ages. Eventually the game moves past what that thought is. Um, so... Uh, whether that happens that's, anytime soon seems unlikely, but it seems inevitable. That's that's certainly what seems to have happened at, at Manchester United with Jose Mourinho. Yeah. He sure played the counter attack, and those sort of ideas work when you're not the favourite. It was sort of an, an underdog mentality, and it worked really well for Mourinho at Inter when they won the treble and surprised everyone in the Champions League and won games by playing incredibly defensively, having next to no possession, giving up all the ball and just played on the counter. Uh, but it was a terrible fit at Manchester United because, rightly or wrongly, there's all this talk now about the United way, and yes, I'm doing sarcastic quote marks when I say that, but he just didn't fit it at all. He didn't believe in attacking for attacking's sake. His view was 1-0 is the perfect result, and that just didn't fit anymore. Um, whether or not we'll see football move on from Guardiola's way of possession above all costs that might happen in the next few years, but it seems like Mourinho's view of you need to do what you can to win, that's not cutting it anymore, it seems. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wanted to, to, to quickly say, going back to your point on the, the Arsene Wenger and, and Gareth Belfin, I don't think there's any there's any problems with sort of tweaking little things, you know, for, for game-specific purposes, such as such as dealing with a world-class player like Gareth Bale or, or Eden Hazard. And I still think Guardiola still does that. But I think just the question put to him was changing a whole philosophy in terms of a, a longer time, a longer mm. period of games. But as you say, I think managers are clued on in terms of if you're coming up against a Gareth Bale, then you will have to tweak it slightly in order to to try and nullify his threat and try and and, and create that as a uh, as a as a threat for yourself. Um, and I think, as you say, probably where Wenger probably went wrong. But I still think Guardiola still got that in his in his armory and he, as you say with Mourinho I think he's probably best I think Inter Milan was when he was at his peak and that's when he was preferred to be an underdog and there wasn't an expectation of how you play but as you say at Manchester United there's there's that, that expectation where you've got to be on the front foot and, and always attacking and, and especially at home and I just think Mourinho he sort of didn't embody that and um, and but I don't really think that was quite a Mourinho Problem. I think it might go higher up at the club because if you look at the the past three appointments since Alex Ferguson, I mean, if you exclude Solskjaer at the moment, um, you look at David Moyes, Louis Van Gaal, and then Mourinho. I wouldn't say that those three probably boast the best attacking teams that you've ever seen, which has brought them all success. Yeah, no, I think those are really good points. There were some pretty attacking days at Manchester United under those those managers, but they I feel like they all were trying to instill this defensive brand that, as you were saying, United fans just weren't as willing to accept as maybe other fan bases were. And it's one of the reasons why uh, I saw somebody tout Diego Simeone as a good fit in Manchester United. And I was like, I don't think the fan base could take another couple of years of defensive first football. But um, now I'm curious to hear you guys 
talk about your clubs and managers. If, say, Burnley or Southampton were on a losing streak, hypothetically, hasn't happened at all this season, how would your club or manager deal with that situation? Do you tweak the formation or the players that you're using? Just what, what is your reaction? Hmm. Burnley on a losing streak. This this is a situation that I can hardly imagine. This is so <laughs> difficult to to wrap my head around. Um, yeah, this this is an interesting one for us because today's game at West Ham so let's go back to very much a, a at home to West Ham. Sorry, very much a back to basics approach. It was four four two. We brought Tom Heaton back in goal. I'm sure we'll cover that later. Um, and we've had three games where we went to a, a back five and. It's it's the first real period this season where Daesh hasn't really seemed sure what he's doing, basically. Um, we talk about managers having a best 11, and I'm never sure that's a really useful phrase because, as we said earlier, you should target the opposition's flaws, try and make the most out of those, and also combat their strengths with tweaks in your own team so having a best 11 doesn't really make that much sense to me but for most of Dash's time at the club Burnley have had a best 11 and you knew turning up at the turf for whatever the game was if everyone was fit you knew who was going to play for most of Dash's six years in charge that's been the case this season it's been totally different there's been multiple changes every week selection has seemed random people have been talking about him picking names out of a hat for the team and that's how it's seen when it's been announced sometimes on a Saturday afternoon the fact that he went to a back five seemed really desperate to me and although at Spurs it almost worked and we defended very well on the whole the first time using that system got caught out at the end by a Christian Eriksen goal a bit of extra quality tells that sometimes happens but the fact that he'd done something so radical seemed to me that it was just casting around for something that could possibly work and it didn't work. We lost all three games with the back five, conceded nine goals in those three games, so it didn't improve our defensive issues. Um, and the fact that we went back to the back four today, two strikers, quite direct football, trying to mix it, it seems to me that Dash went back to what was good a couple of years ago when we got promoted, the things that worked there. He seems to have gone back to what he knows, what works. He's tried a few different things this season and it hasn't worked. So... I think he's almost doubled down. I think that's what happened today. He's tried a couple of things that people have been asking him to do. They didn't really work. He didn't seem fully committed to it. The personnel maybe wasn't quite right to make it work. So the fact that he's done that today suggests that he's realised that sometimes you just have to do things in quite a simple way. Yeah, and I think, I mean, looking from a certain point of view, it's... um... Uh, losing streaks of something I've uh, I've become accustomed to in the past couple of seasons um, under Pellegrino and then Mark Hughes. Um, instead of changes on the pitch under Mark Hughes, we just changed the man in the dugout. <laughs> so for us at the moment, it's um, the Hazen who affects. I mean, we we did get the new manager bounce um, after back-to-back wins after against Arsenal and then Huddersfield. Um, but under under Mark Hughes, as I say. We, <laughs> He he sort of chopped and changed the formation around. He chopped and changed the players, and then 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 time sort of ran out for Mark Hughes. And and now we're in a position with with Ralph Hasenhut, who's now lost back to back games at home. I mean, one of them was Manchester City today. So it's it's you know it's what you take out of that game. I and mean, we didn't really expect much going into it. But I think now we've got a manager like Hasenhut. I think there's a lot more um, optimism in terms of turning it around under Mark Hughes. It was sort of excuses every week and it wasn't um, obviously it wasn't all down to him it was down to the players as well but I think Mark Hughes there was there was a slight hint that he wasn't really taking the blame on himself he was sort of par- passing the buck and now, now under Hasenhutl I think the fans have got uh, a, a more positive outlook that, that he can change things because of his track record in Germany and already at the start of his tenure he's starting to use youngsters as sort of we saw uh, uh, Ramsey make his debut today um, at right back, and, and then he got moved into into a back five. He was became the, the right centre back, and then Jan Valerie come has come on. He's sort of been his starting right back. He's sort of made that position his own. Um, with Hasenhutl coming out and saying that Cedric is fully fit and in training, he's just got to win back his place. Um, so for for at the moment, I think 
Ralph is trying to sort of use the element of of not elements of, of surprise, but a bit of using players from the youth academy who who opposition won't know too much about and, and trying to give them a platform in which to perform and trying to get out of it. Um, as today, obviously, Burnley's win has moved us level points of, with the bottom three. So we're now, we're, you know, we're firmly back in back in the uh, relegation scrap and we were never really out of it um, after back-to-back wins. It just sort of kept us, kept us not being sort of cut adrift. So, yeah, I think there's a lot more positivity about Hasenhutl, but um, as you said, I think he's, I think he's figured out his his first team eleven, which something Mark Hughes probably couldn't say. Um, and and we probably saw a secondary team today against Man City. We saw Danny Ings on the bench, didn't even make an appearance today. Same with Stuart Armstrong. Um, Redmond came on for the second half. So, yeah, I think Hasenhutl at the moment is is trying to get to know his squad as much as possible and, and I think he's still using the youngsters to try and give them a platform to form as I already said. Yeah, interesting stuff for sure. Um at Tottenham we we humble brag tend to not go on two bad losing streaks of late. Um but and this is going to sound crazy in press conferences after Tottenham lose it almost sounds like Pochettino wanted us to lose. Um just because he, I think the thing he detests the most in some of our players is the laziness or cockiness that can come with winning. And I think that was certainly on display um, in the match against Wolves uh, in that second half. And you can say it's tiredness. I think in reality it's more to do with the fact that we have two fit central midfielders. Um, and so they're just really worn out, which makes it pretty easy to bypass us through the middle. But I think losing enables Pochettino to change his own mindset on who should be playing and how we should be playing. We, we've pretty much stuck to, to our tactics this season without changing too much, although I've seen a lot of people say that it's been a diamond, but it, it's really more fluid than that. And not to go back to the philosophy talk, but um, Pochettino has said before that it's not really about formations with him, um, that it's really about the philosophy of how the players are, are placed or placing themselves during play more than just like looking at a spreadsheet before the match starts. Um, but I think losses encourage him to test what he's doing, test which players should be doing it. Um, we do have the rotations at the wing backs, but aside from that, especially in the second halves of seasons, uh, now all three of us have mentioned best 11, it seems like he just narrows down on the players he can trust and which positions he can trust, and then he just rolls with it. And it takes a loss for him to be able to rationalize either to himself or to the players that there need to be changes made. Um, and I think when that happens, it kind of encourages all that growth that's supposed to happen when you sign players, which we haven't really done a lot of, of, of just getting players kind of off their uh, backside and really, really putting in their best effort. And I realize these are a lot of cliches, but it genuinely tends to be how Pochettino responds to losses. Is in the on the day he's obviously very disappointed that we've lost, but like I said, it, it it's almost like it offers him a freedom from his own thoughts and ideas, uh, and allows him to to mix things up. And oftentimes it works. I really probably should have looked up our win percentage after losses, but I feel like it's probably very high, um, at least this season. So. Um, yeah, just a, a weird reaction from from Pochettino when we lose is that sometimes it seems like he kind of likes it. All right, we have passed the halfway point, although we're one match week late. Uh, obviously, this is match week 20, not 19. But we have all now seen every team play against our team in the Premier League. So I wanted to get you guys' thoughts on which opponent you've been most and least impressed with thus far. Yeah, I think um, I'm going to say Watford for the team that I was most impressed with against us. Uh, they had a pretty terrible away record when they came to the turf early in the season. But they beat us really easily. It was 3-1 and probably could have been more than that. It, they, <clears throat> excuse me. They beat us 3-1 and it, it could have really been more than that, to be honest. Uh, they cut us apart almost at will. And we didn't really know how to cope with their mix of pace and physicality and technique as well. They scored three very high-quality goals. Uh, we were lucky to get away with a 3-1 defeat in that game, to be honest. And I think that was a warning sign for us early in the season that it wasn't going to be a case of repeating what we did last term. Um, in terms of the, the opponent that impressed me the least, it's difficult not to just go with Bournemouth. We battered them 4-0 at home in September. Our best performance of the season by a long way. Bournemouth 
been incredibly hit and miss this season, haven't they? They've had some excellent results and some pretty terrible ones as well. When they're bad, they seem to be very, very bad. But considering how we started that season, this season, uh, for us to win that game 4-0 was absolutely remarkable and Bournemouth were, were nothing short of a shambles, really. Yeah, I think um, the, the 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 team that's come to St Mary's and, and impressed me the most this season, I'd probably have to go with with Chelsea. Um, they came and we we were at a bad spell in the season. Uh, Mark Hughes was still at the helm, so we probably weren't at our, our our best for the day. But I think Chelsea just came and and they just controlled the game from the first minute into the last. Um, Eden Hazard's. Um, just, just such an impressive player to watch on his day, and uh, yeah, they came over and they they rolled us over three nil. Um, but it could have been more than that. I think the scoreline probably flattered Saints a lot. Um, so yeah, and then the worst team I think I've I've seen come to St Mary's um, this season was was probably Brighton. But I think it was, I know it was we were two 0 up and 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 we we threw it away and it was two two. But I think both teams that day were just lack of any quality at all it was a really really um scrappy game both teams really poor in possession um and I, I, i've been impressed with brighton i have been since they've uh they, they've been promoted and um but that game i think both teams were just really really poor and a draw was a fair result because we were probably as bad as each other um that day um so yeah i'd probably have to go with brighton for, like, for, for the worst team to, to come to marriage this season yeah, uh, for Tottenham, the best team, uh, obviously, was Barcelona in the Champions League, but uh, sticking to my own prompt and, and talking about the Premier League, it was probably City. Um, we got outplayed by both City and Liverpool, as I'm sure many clubs will do this season and have done already. Um, but I think City just edged it a bit more because we just really didn't create much in that match, and we were really stymied. Um, it only ended up being a 1-0, which is probably the most flattering scoreline we've had against them maybe since that last bail year. I really hope that's not true, but it feels like it anyway. Um, but they, they, they were very, they were performing very well. And Liverpool, when we played them, they were still a little bit in that kind of slow start mode. Um, so yeah, City probably the best ones that we face in the Premier League this year. And the worst were Bournemouth. Um, I was really looking forward to that match um, for uh, my own reasons in that if Poch were to leave, which we will continue to not add fuel to, um, I think Eddie Howe would be a very good replacement. Um, so I was really interested to see that match, and then it just ended up being a cakewalk. They they are hitting their regression so hard right now, especially for people that saw the, the match against Manchester United today. Um, and typically the, the clubs, save for Burnley, usually the clubs that are battling with the top six end up fading away. Um, and they're doing an impressive version of that right now. Obviously with issues, Lewis Cook going down long term isn't great. Then they lost Francis as well, but... Uh, was was really disappointing uh, watching them, uh, d- which is a rare thing to see for an opponent. I just really expected it to be a better match and for them to play better, and they sure did not. All right, we'll wrap up uh, this opening segment by talking about the January transfer window. There's, there's this narrative going around that there are no good deals, at least in our fan base, is flying everywhere. There are no good deals in, in January. You shouldn't even bother spending your money. Uh, what do you guys make of the winter transfer window? I think it, I think it can be a make or break time for certain teams. I think especially, I think more so down the bottom of the league um, than, than towards the top. But I think the narrative that there are no good deals in the winter, uh, in the winter window um, is, is false. I mean, look at, look at Liverpool last season. I think we sold them Van Dijk in January and arguably he's been the, the player that, that has spearheaded them to, to this phenomenal phenomenal half of the season um, he was the missing piece in the jigsaw yes I agree that you probably have to pay, uh, pay a premium for players because it's probably the worst time that, that teams want to get get rid of players especially the top players but I think for, for teams that are down down in the table I think a good loan deal for, for someone who um, isn't getting game time and, and can um, really help in in any department that you need them. Um, but as I say, I think there's a premium on players that that you will you will see um, being paid. I think tapping into my own club, I think Saints signed signed Gabbiadini in in January, and when he came, he was um, 
he was on fire when he came in. He scored. A, 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 he had a great goal scoring record when he came in. He scored two in the FL Cup final. He scored in his debut. Um, I think he went on sort of like a six-game scoring run, a, a winning goal against Watford away. So I mean, yeah, I think I think in every window though, it d- depends on depends on who you're signing. I think you've got to be sensible with it. But as I said, I think that for teams lower lower down on the table, it, it can be a crucial time. Yeah, I don't know if it's the best time to buy players, really. I think if you're looking to bring someone in at this time of the season, you're probably going to be looking at players who, like Sam says, they're maybe not getting a game somewhere else, or they're perhaps low on confidence or not necessarily 100% match fit. You may be looking at players who other clubs are trying to move on. So I think your your pool of players that you can sign is maybe limited. Um but if if you've got a squad that has an obvious weakness, it's an opportunity to address that. So um, when people talk about not entering the window at all, I think it's a, a bit of a missed opportunity. It can be Barcelona, for example, their manager, Ernesto Valverde, was talking about he'd be quite happy if the, the window closed before it was opened. He didn't want to see any business done whatsoever. And that's, that's Barcelona. We've got one of the strongest teams in one of the strongest squads in Europe thinking that he couldn't improve his squad. But the reality is, like Sam said with Van Dijk, it's an opportunity as well to bring in players who are going to make a real impact the following season. Sometimes players take that time to settle. And if you can get someone in January and then they make a big impact the following season, then that's been excellent business. Maybe they don't make such a big impact over the second half of this season, but they can go on to be a really big asset the following year. And I think people sometimes miss that aspect to, to the window. As far as Burnley go, it's it's a tricky one for us because there's been a lot of talk about Sean Dyche's future in the last couple of weeks with the, the way that results have been. There's a lot of people saying sort of sack him or back him. There's talk that there's not going to be that much money spent. It's already sort of managing expectations sort of uh, feel around the club at the minute. Burnley don't have the sort of budget anyway that can compete with a lot of teams. You see someone like Fulham. As Dash pointed out, after we lost heavily at Craven Cottage, they spent about £100 million in the summer. Um, and I think teams like Fulham will probably spend again in the January window. I'll be surprised if we do a lot of business, but I don't think you should just say that we shouldn't do any business whatsoever. Although, looking at how Spurs have gone this season, maybe it's the way forward just to never sign anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely uh, worked out until the, uh, we lose a single match and then everyone's like, that's why. Um yeah, I I wholly agree that uh, it's not the best time to buy financially, but is the only time you're allowed to buy during the season, um, business wise. And I think you you hit a great point with um, bringing in players for later. We've certainly done that with Eli Ali, and then we did it with Lucas last January. But <clears throat> I think this is still more of like feel the industry is still obsessed with this narrative of like budget buys and spent too much and stuff like that when especially for the clubs at the top of the table we're kind of in a post spend world where the numbers are just basically all made up it's not the fans money um so really it comes down to what is the impact of the players on the pitch because saying it's not a good deal means that you're just overpaying it doesn't mean that you haven't gotten in a player that'll matter for example last january obamiang as you mentioned van dyke as i mentioned lucas laporte were all big signings to big clubs, all of whom are helping them this season. And then even further down the table, Newcastle basically saved their season in January. Bring in Dubrovka and Kennedy. Um, uh, Jamie, I know you tried bringing in Nkudu, and that didn't work for two weeks, so then you brought in Lennon, and he's still uh, a regular fixture for you. Uh, Everton bringing in Walcott, and Tosin did well when he first came in, obviously has, has fallen off since. But it is it is a very crucial time of the season. Um, a few years back, I wrote an article which, at the time, the trend was over the last 10 years that teams that spend over £5 million in January average two points higher uh, through the rest of the season than those that don't. Um, and obviously, two points can be massive when, when de- debating the title race, when debating the top four, debating relegation. And every single place in the Premier League table is worth its own sum of money. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a very time, important time of season, as, as you guys have said. And I don't understand why so many people try to take it down. Like, Yes, it is not just the free-for-all that the summer market is. It's mid-season, so you have to worry about how you, how you blood them into the team. Uh, as Jamie, as you were saying, maybe it's not now. Maybe you bring them in now and they settle 
through the rest of the season and then really kick on the next. But all of those things are good. It's still good players coming to your club. And while the prices may be a little high, you just that's the price of business. Um, and as uh, you were saying, Sam, it can save clubs, especially towards the bottom of the table. You bring in the right forward who can actually score goals if that's been an issue, or a creator that can kind of set up things for the players you already have, and it can really, really change uh, your, your fate there towards the end of the year. Uh, Jamie talked about uh, how his club... Uh, would be addressing the window. Uh, Sam, what do you think we're going to see from Southampton? Obviously, with kind of a shortened tenure there for, for Hasenhudl. Yeah, I think uh, Saints are usually uh, quite conservative in, in the January window. I think we don't, we like to keep our cards sort of close to our chest and we sort of say that we're not very that active. But what worries me is that I think there's, there's, there's gaps in this team where we really need to bring in some players. I think... I think a short-term deal for, for a centre-back is crucial. I think we're leaking too many goals. Um, the signs of Wesley Hoyt, Hoyt especially, hasn't worked out. I think Vestergaard is going to need a bit of, bit more time um, to adapt to the Premier League. So a, a short loan deal for someone like Gary Cahill would be perfect. Um, I think he's fallen down the pecking order even below uh, Andreas Christensen at Chelsea, who he, he can't himself can't even... Uh, break into the team at the moment. Um, w- w- the problem with Saints at the moment is we've got a, a capable squad of very good players. But when I when I compare the teams, when I compare uh, us to someone like West Ham, who we lost to uh, only a few days ago, we haven't got a player at the moment with real star quality who can really turn it on and and you know turn the game on its head. Um, will we find one of those players in January? Probably not. Um, but I think this is a good opportunity for us to to bring in someone for defensive cover and to try and shore up our defence. Um, to be honest, I think there'll probably be more outgoings and incomings. Um, our owner and chairman already came out a, a couple of uh, weeks ago saying that we probably need to sell to buy. Um, so we, we'll probably see um, bigger name players go at the moment who who can't force their way into the team and and we probably just see maybe one one player come in permanently but I think it will be someone that Hars and Hootham knows um I think it's going to have to be I think we're going to have to back him in this window if we're, if we're to stay up yeah uh, at Tottenham I don't think we're going to see a whole lot of motion in January if I had to guess maybe one central midfielder um as Jamie and I were discussing on Twitter I really wouldn't mind Rabio. um would be very gambly and would cost a lot of money, but would be very interesting. There were reports that he was definitely joining Barcelona, and then Barcelona said he's definitely not joining Barcelona. So uh, we'll see kind of where that saga goes. But what I will say is the loss this week should not push us into the market, which I've weirdly seen a lot this week of people saying, you know, this is exactly what was always going to happen when we didn't sign players. You know, it was one loss to a Wolves team that was very close to coming back and beating us last team last time when we were at more full strength. Um, we still have Dembele and Wanyama to return uh, in central midfield. We still have Jan to return as a center back. Um, the the position that I've wanted to fill um, for like a year and a half now has been a, a wide forward. Lucas creates a bit more. I, I don't really like him when he's playing straight up front. But the, the reason why I wanted a wide forward instead of a striker is, A, it's impossible to get any decent striker to come sit behind Harry Kane 36 out of 38 match weeks. Um, and secondly... It gives them a chance to play up front when they can, or if Sun is the one that we choose to play up front, they can take that wide position. The two players I really wanted in that role uh, were Martial and Depay. Martial obviously having a resurgence, and he managed it under Mourinho, which roughly one Manchester United player did. Uh, maybe Luke Shaw. Um, but uh, that's that's the position I would want, and especially with Sun going off for um, international duty yet again. Um, but we can't be too mad because... Uh, his win there in August in the Asian Cup is why he won't have to do military service, so not begrudging them, but he is leaving again with the international team. And Kane is a yellow card away from suspension. And Lorente has done very little to inspire, despite a pretty decent uh, effort against Real Madrid in the Champions League last year, um, but he has done very little since. Maybe that's the position you address, but my guess is Tottenham signed one player, and much like Lucas, I doubt that they'd really become a fixture in the team until next season. All right, now we'll take a break and then we'll be back with club-specific questions for each of our guests. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, and we are back. Jamie, will lead in with you and Burnley. Uh, a thing that we talked about a lot has finally happened, which is Tom Heaton has finally won the starting job back. It's, of course, not from Nick Pope, who's, who we always assumed he'd take it back from, but instead Joe Hart, who was, at the time, the Premier League saves leader. Uh, what do you make of this switch in goal? Yeah, I think this was... Uh, I think it's been coming for some time. Um, but the timing of it is quite interesting with the January window coming up. Nick Pope is back in reserve team action and should be available soon. So to change the goalkeeper now is a curious decision for me. However, the Boxing Day defeat against Everton was the final straw, I think, for a lot of people and Joe Hart. Five goals conceded. Three of them, I think, were at least partly his fault, either from not coming for crosses or not being positioned properly or not pushing the ball around the post instead of palming it into his own net. Whether it's minor to major, I think three of the five goals could be laid at his door. You're right that he's made a lot of saves this season, so it's absolutely unfair to say that it's all Joe Hart's fault. Some of it's been Charlie Taylor's fault as well, but a lot of it has been Joe Hart's fault for me. It's been a very strange situation where we've had the captain of the club, Tom Heaton, fit, available, on the bench, giving interviews to the media, saying how unhappy he is about not playing. I think it's probably been incredibly destabilising. Heaton's been at the club for a long time. He must have allies within the squad. Not for one second saying that people stopped trying because Heaton wasn't playing, but I think behind the scenes it must have had an impact. Um, Joe Hart can be a bit combustible I don't know if that's the right word but it's the sort of personality who maybe rubs people the wrong way a little bit sometimes uh, so I don't know if that's had an impact I think essentially we've like I said earlier we've tried a back five we've tried some different personnel Gibson came in for a game Kevin Long's played some games hasn't really made a difference we've conceded loads of goals whatever's happening so at some point you have to look at the goalkeeper Um and today, Tom Heaton comes in, Burnley win, keep a clean sheet. So it seems obvious that it's had a massive impact. Whether or not it will continue to be that way remains to be seen, but certainly a very popular move. A lot of positive chance aimed at Heaton. He's clearly extremely popular among the fan base. Joe Hart doesn't seem to have... Fans don't seem to have taken to Joe Hart in the same way that they have to, to Heaton and Pope. But, yeah, I think the timing of it is is particularly curious. I would have done it weeks ago, but I almost thought it was too late to do it now with the window opening. Three goalkeepers into one doesn't go, and Nick Pope will soon be available. So I think we've got a situation coming up now where at least one of the goalkeepers is going to have to leave in January, um, and whoever's not playing of the other two is going to be extremely unhappy and, again, potentially destabilising on the squad. So... Uh, a tricky one for Sean Dash to look at, but he's caused that problem for himself by signing Joe Hart, so very little sympathy for him, <laughs> to be honest. Wasn't he signed for the uh, Europa League push, though? Uh, he was. It's a tricky one, because when he signed, Heaton and Pope were both injured, so on the face of it, if you're Burnley and you have a chance to sign a player of the prestige of Joe Hart, former England international, a lot of caps three Golden Gloves, I think, for Manchester City. Um, it made sense on paper. It was relatively cheap. He came in for £3 million or something. It wasn't a lot of money. 
you think it makes sense, but this problem was always going to arise. Pope was always going to be back around mid-season. Heaton, his injury was always short-term. So it solved a problem short-term and, for me, created one medium-term. And that's the situation that we're going to see play out over the next few weeks. Joe Hart, to his credit, he's never been happy to sit on a bench somewhere. When Pep Guardiola turned up at Man City and said that he basically wasn't wanted because he can't kick a ball, Joe Hart straight away said, right, fine, well, I'll go somewhere else and play. And went to Torino in like 10 hours. (laughs) Exactly. Tested himself in a different league, a different language. I think that's very admirable. Went to West Ham and, all right, he lost his place there. It didn't work out. But I think Hart's shown, and he still believes, he he tells the media that he still believes he can and should get in the England squad. So he's not going to accept not playing. Nick Pope was one of the outstanding goalkeepers in the Premier League last season. When he's fit, he's not going to accept not playing. Tom Heaton's already told the media that if he's not playing, he's not going to want to stay. So uh, it's going to be a, a really tough one for, for Sean Dash to, to juggle over the next few weeks. Yeah, and then I'm glad you brought up uh, Sean Dash there because a little bit after the Arsenal match and a little bit louder after the Everton match, there seemed to be sections of the Burnley fan base that were starting to question Sean Dyche's role as manager of Burnley. Did you ever get there? Uh, I definitely got that. I don't think I ever fully moved over into the Dyche out camp. But it's it's such a tough one because he's been the manager for six years. He's got us promoted twice. He's kept us in the Premier League. He's taken us to Europe for the first time in 50 years. Some bad results don't erase all the good things that Sean Dyche has done. But if we want to stay in the Premier League, before today's win, it seemed very much like the manager was going to have to change. Hopefully today will turn out to be a turning point, but the win over Bournemouth that I mentioned earlier, a lot of people thought that was going to be a turning point. It wasn't. It just turned out to be false hope. So hopefully against Huddersfield in our next game, we'll keep some momentum going we're not cut adrift at all it's only goal difference keeping us in the bottom three so there's no need to panic but before today it did seem like the fight had gone out of the team that was the concern for me that the fight had gone out of the team Um, Dash talked about the team hadn't lost their commitment before the West Ham game but for me it seemed clear the Everton game it was uh, it was what I called a sack the manager performance. The team had just down tools. The first half an hour it was utterly disgraceful. They weren't playing for the manager. It was three 0 and it could have been five in twenty minutes, twenty five minutes. It was absolutely terrible. It was probably the worst I've seen Burnley play for a decade, maybe even longer than that. Um, so I think after that there had to be a really radical turnaround for the West Ham game. Dash made some big decisions. He's dropped the goalkeeper. He's brought back Dwight McNeil, teenager. He's had a big impact on the games he's played this season. And by all accounts, it's had a massive impact. I haven't actually seen the game today, so maybe it's uh, me being a jinx all along. First game of the season I've not been able to see, <laughs> and we've won. So maybe it has all been my fault. But it seems like the players have responded to that, whether Heaton coming back in goal has been... That they've factor. responded to you not watching, you mean? Yeah, exactly. They've gone, <laughs> Jamie's not watching, he's not come to the game today, even though it's his day off because he couldn't be bothered, and he's not even bothering to watch it on a stream, so we'll do a win. Um, and that's clearly what's turned it around. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I did a poll um, on Twitter after the Everton game, said dash out or in dash we trust, and it did come out in favour of dash out. Um, so I think people were starting to get that way. Uh, with the window coming up, obviously it's a case of you want the new manager to have time in the January transfer. There is certainly a feeling in the the fan base that there is a need to bring additions in. And if you do get a new manager, obviously you need to back them in the transfer window. Like I said earlier, it was a, a sack him or back him sort of situation. So I think he's certainly bought himself a bit more time. And if we get a positive result against Huddersfield, then it'll be a case of we'll probably stick with him until the end of the season. The argument that I'm sure is being made in the boardroom and I've heard fans make, is that if we were to get relegated, who would be more qualified than Sean Dyche to bring Burnley back to the Premier League? He's done it twice, mm-hmm. straight away. So the last time we got relegated, we came back straight away, won the title, were unbeaten for half the season. So if we got relegated, you could be reasonably confident that Dyche could bring us back. But the flip side is, if we get relegated and played the way that we have been for the last few weeks, how do you turn around that momentum? It's it's a really tricky one for me, and 
a lot of supporters also talk about the championship as if it's this romantic, amazing place where dreams are had. It's like you could be lead, you could get relegated and not come back for a long time. So it's a tough one. I don't think I was ever fully dash needs to go, but I was certainly getting there. Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see how you do. But as you say, it gives you probably one of the best chances at staying up. And then, as you said, if you go down, could certainly uh, get you back into the Premier League. Sam, Southampton with their own uh, managerial stuff, as we mentioned at the top of the show. Uh, Hassan Hoodle's been in the job for almost a month now. Um, the attack seems to be doing better. The defense seems to be doing worse. What have you made of his uh, tenure thus far? I think up until... Well, to be honest, I think it's it's been really positive. Um, the first game of his tenure against Cardiff was pretty was very much uh, a marquee's team. Hasenhutl had only been in the job properly for for one or two days. Took training uh, a full training session for for one day. The other day was a recovery session after Tottenham away. Um, so against Cardiff, we were pretty much seeing a, a marquee's team, and and it was one mistake by. Yannick Vestergaard, which cost us us a point. Um, Then after a full week's training, we we play Arsenal at home, sort of fearing the worst because of just how the season had gone so far. And and we looked looked fantastic. Um, I'll admit that I wasn't at the game. I couldn't attend. So the the only home win this season, um, a bit like Jamie today, I was in attendance. So, um, yeah, a little bit annoying on that front. But, um, yeah, it was a, a good win. Um, we, we deserved all three points, I'd say, against Arsenal. Um, and then another another four weeks training and we play Huddersfield in a, in a, in a six-point game um, away from home. And, and again, we've we've done really well and, and come out 3-1 winners. And then that, after the Huddersfield game, everything looked rosy. Everyone was really positive about the club. The positivity had come back after two and a half, almost three seasons of of negativity around the club sort of towards the back end of Claude Puel's tenure and then the whole Pellegrino season and Mark Hughes and then we were sort of our hopes sort of built up because Hughes kept us up and then and then we obviously didn't look to push on um so everything it was it was a good feel-good factor was back at back at St Mary's and everyone was really looking forward to sort of the second half of the season um we come up against West Ham um no no Pierre Hoiberg he's been our standout performer this season and, and looked to a, a, a really good fit for Hasenhutl's style um, and and we just we just looked a bit leggy, we looked a bit tired I mean we know that the Hasenhutl's been implementing a, a, a tough training regime to try and get the players fit uh, fit again and, and fit, to, fit for purpose of what he's trying to do and um, we just didn't we just lacked that little bit of energy, a little bit of uh, that little bit of zip that you needed in West Ham with their with their star players and in, in Anderson and Declan Rice just ran the show, um, and they they actually deserved three points. Um, I don't think the Saints lost to West Ham because we were particularly bad. I think we probably lost to West Ham because they were quite they're, you know they were particularly good, um, and and then we come up against Man City today and. We've we've for for the most part of the the first half we've looked good. Um, we've 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 equalised probably on the run of play, maybe against the run of play a little bit. But the the way that the way that Saints sort of grew back into the game, grew into confidence. Um, uh, a goal was a a good reward for that. Um, and then at one one we get denied a penalty, which is one of those which you you see them given, you see them or not given, obviously today. Um, and we feel a little bit unjust, a little bit um, uh, mistreated, a little bit unlucky that that wasn't awarded in. Who knows what would happen if that was taken and that would have gone in? Um, but instead, the flip side is they they score a, a goal which was really unlucky again from our part, and then. It was just a poor bit of defending, something that, as you say, has been really, really poor the whole season. Again, under Haas and Newton, we haven't been able to keep a clean sheet yet, and, and it was just a poor, poor goal to concede to let Aguero, probably the smallest player on the pitch, get in between two centre-halves and, and head in from from close range. There's questions over the goalkeeper. Could he have come? Could he not? Could he have done better with the header? But I think it's more of a defensive issue. Um with that, um, after these two defeats, now everything's 
not not negative because as I said, there's still that positivity that they've shown that they've got the quality in the squad to get results, especially against Huddersfield, which was a massive game, a massive pressure game. Um, but yeah, just after these two defeats, things are not not brought back to reality, but it's sort of the the everyone sort of realised our position again, and everyone's realised that okay, yes, we had two good results. We sort of created a little bit of a gap between the bottom three. But now after two defeats, we're, we're, we're level points with the bottom three. Um, so it's, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. I think the main problem with us now, and, and which is going to be really um, testing of the squad, is now that Hoiberg has said our, our, be- our best performance of the season so far again, Got, was stupidly sent off today. Um, he's just had a rush of blood. Uh, probably frustrated that Saints couldn't lay a, lay a glove on Man City in the second half, and he's just made that decision, which has sort of let his teammates down, and let himself down, and let and let the fans down. Um, but as I said, I think I think Hazard, there's still that air of positivity. There's still a lot more optimism that we'll get out of. We can get out of this, but I think we recognise that. We need we need some defensive stability in January. Um, going forward, I think we look good. Um, the one thing we were doing under we weren't doing under Mark Hughes, sorry, was was finishing our chances. Something that we we have been doing under Harden. I'm not too sure really what what that is. Is it the manager effect? Um, is it a confidence thing that the the new managers brought into into our forwards? Um, I don't know. But as I said, it's we, it's not. A problem of going forward now it's just keeping the ball out of of our own net yeah uh one of the cool things that we anticipated when we did our segment when he was first hired was that he would bring through youth players and he's certainly already mm-hmm. done that uh so which other youth players should we kind of keep an eye on as they verge on to towards being in the first team um i think jan valerie jan valerie's been one of those um a player who's He's featured, and I think he's yeah. I believe he started every game under Hasenhutl, um, and he was one of those players who, for for the past sort of year and a half, has has, has been making noises from the from the youth team. Um, and of course, Michael Oberfemi, um made his made his debut last year against Tottenham um, under uh, Maurizio Pellegrino, and. Um, yeah, I think he's a, he's a player who 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 has has great pace. He's got a good eye for goal, um, and yeah, I think we'd be quite excited about about both of those players. Valerie, as I said earlier in the show, has sort of made the right back position his own by impressing Hasenhutl in in the in the games that he's played. As I said, Cedric's fully fit. Um, he's he's been in full training, and. Uh, yeah, he's he's just got to fight for his place again. Um, and and Michael Oberfemi scored his first senior goal, and and what a crucial guy it was against Huddersfield. Um, two one, it was two one at the time. Huddersfield had pulled one back. Uh, we were probably dealing with a lot of pressure, and uh, he popped up in the right moment, and it, it was a great finish. Uh, a nice slotted down into the bottom corner. So yeah, those those two at the moment have have mostly impressed. But we've seen. Um, a few, a few players are already coming through that that haven't really been making too much noises in the in the youth team. Uh, Tyreek Johnson came on for his debut against against Arsenal. So yeah, I think Hasenhutl clearly has that philosophy. It's a philosophy the club's held forever, forever since I've been supporting them. So um, yeah, Oberfemi and Valerie are, are definitely the players that have been impressive at the moment from from the youth team. All right, now let's go from there into a little more player information. Jamie, we'll come to you first. Uh, which players at Burnley do you think could kind of be on the chopping block or on the move in January? Yeah, I mean, I've touched on it already, but I think the the goalkeeper situation is now sort of untenable, I think. Um, normally, you'd say having two or three good options for a position would be a good thing, but... Obviously, you, you don't tend to rotate your goalkeepers and you only name two in a squad. So we're now in a position where within the next couple of weeks, hopefully Nick Port will be ready to return um, and one of the three won't be in the squad, let alone in the team. Um, I think it's it seems inevitable to me that either Tom Heaton or Joe Hart will leave the club in January, whether it's on loan or permanently, I suppose, depends on who's interested. I was talking Leeds wanting Heaton, but that then Bielsa wanted someone more comfortable with the ball at his feet, 
which seems to be the modern way and might restrict the Cubs that sort of want either him or Hart because obviously Hart's reputation in that regard was sort of destroyed by City casting him adrift as soon as, as Pep Guardiola came in. Um, in terms of others leaving the club, I, I think we'd be more trying to add rather than let people go. There aren't that many players who haven't been involved at all. We've had a few injuries this season, so it's been a case of filling the bench with youngsters at times. So there's no one who's really totally on the fringes. Um, I'm sure all Burnley fans would like to see additions, but like I said, I don't think we're going to do a lot of business in the January window. I don't think it'll be a lot of incomings or outgoings, but I do think the, the goalkeeper situation is one that will need to be resolved. Dash basically needs to decide who his number one is going to be for the second half of the season and make that call as soon as possible so that so that these guys can sort out their futures as much as anything. If you're Tom Heaton, you want to be assured that you're going to play for the rest of the season, otherwise you need to go somewhere else and play. These, these three guys all consider themselves to be proven number ones in the Premier League, so it's not realistic to have them all at the same club. Um, it's all very well when we signed Joe Hart going, oh, isn't it great to have three England goalkeepers at the club? But this isn't a problem that should come as a surprise to Sean Dyche that you can only play one goalkeeper at once. That's a rule that football has had for, for quite a long time. I don't know. Maybe you could try to innovate. <laughs> well, maybe playing multiple goalkeepers would help us to keep clean sheets. That's been a real problem for us. <laughs> if you taped them where one was right side up and one was standing normally you could yeah, kind well, of make saves with the other one's foot yeah joe hart can famously not dive to one side so <laughs> he could just focus on one side of the goal the other goalkeeper can have the other side it, it might work out <laughs> well barring that i see your point you probably are a little too stacked at that position uh sam do you think we'll see any outgoings from southampton in january uh yeah i think uh, Manolo Gabbiadini is pretty much certainty to to leave the club in January. As I said earlier, the club are, are looking to sell before they buy. Um, he hasn't featured at all since Hazan Hootel's come into the club. And he's one of those players who are coming up just the weeks before a transfer window. He's always being touted to be going back to Italy, um, going just just leaving the club in general, going to, to Italy, going to other clubs in England. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him go back to uh, back to Italy. Sorry, um, for for around probably probably what we we bought him for, uh, maybe a little bit less. Um, uh, who else? There's there's a lot of players at the moment. We've got a large squad um, of players who are sort of at the fringes of the Premier League. Who who probably. As I, as I said earlier, a, a, a good players, good enough for the Premier League, but aren't really the types of players who are going to help you up, up the table. So players like Shane Long, um, Stephen Davis, players who probably have probably come to the end of their tenures at St, at St. Mary's uh, and will probably uh, look to go. I think there's been rumours of Stephen Davis going back to Rangers and, and Shane Long moving to, I think it was Sheffield United or, or someone in in the in the championship to try and help a promotion push um but as as i said we need we need players but if if the club are gonna uh, go with the policy of sell before before we buy then players such as gabby dini who, who can't get into the squads uh are gonna have to go yeah tottenham uh strikers also seem to be uh on the way out Lorente has said that he wants to leave in January, but with the aforementioned issues with Sun leaving and Kane's yellow card situation, I can't imagine it'll be soon. Um, Jansen, I was so excited about when Tottenham signed after the year he had in Azad in the Netherlands, uh, then just kind of had a hit and miss first year, and then just really was never trusted again by Pochettino. He's been frozen out, wasn't even given a squad number this year. Um, so you have to imagine he's probably on his way out. Also, uh, Burnley legend George Kevin and Kudu hasn't really gotten minutes for us uh, and wasn't registered in the Champions League, so uh, really halved his opportunities there. <clears throat> and he hasn't played for us in the Premier League for a single minute, if memory serves. Um, so uh, you'd assume he's on his way out now. If we sell Jansen and Kudu and potentially Lorente, that could be the money for a potential second signing. Maybe. But um, on the whole, i got to imagine it'll be that bunch. 
Um, maybe Walker Peters out on loan, although honestly, I think he should probably replace Trippier at this point. Sorry, Jamie, but thank you for giving uh, him to us initially. Um, <laughs> but um, we, we might see a couple of those kind of kids going out. I'd love for Skip to stay and play a lot. Um, but if we get knocked out of either the Carabao Cup or, or the FA Cup early, that pretty much takes away the chance for any of the youngsters to really get meaningful minutes through the rest of the season. So we, we could see a little bit of a, a lone exodus if we get knocked out in the first couple of rounds of the FA Cup or, or in the Carabao Cup. But uh, otherwise, I don't think there will be a whole lot, even though I just listed three players that could go and youth players who could leave. All right, we will wrap up with match previews. Uh, the first one chronologically is Cardiff versus Tottenham. Uh, we are historically very good against recently promoted sides. Harry Kane scores against them literally all the time. Um, so not too worried about this one. Obviously, uh, is in Wales, um, but that hasn't really been a problem for us either. Our away form has actually been pretty solid this year. Um, although you could argue every match for us is an away match still, but uh, we'll leave that right there for now. I'm pretty confident heading into this one, though. There were a lot of tired legs last time. Um, if none of the other central midfielders are back and fit, this might be an Oliver Skip game, just to give one of Sissoko or Winks a rest. Uh, if Delhi is back and fully fit, maybe we play either him or Erickson in central midfield, um, just so that we can kind of take use of the the depth that we have in attack and use it to kind of fill in uh in central midfield um i don't think Jan's ready to be back although i think he was back in in light training um so the back line will probably be pretty similar it might be foyth uh well they might not be that similar actually because you have foyth toby and davinson who are on all now fit uh and kind of doing their own rotation i think Aurier is still out so it will be trip or walker peters on the right uh, Davis seems to be holding down the left-back spot, even though he's been better as a center-back than a left-back this season, but neither here nor there yet again. But all that to the side, it should be a win. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if Kane was uh, not starting this one. Maybe take advantage of Sun while we have him, or maybe try to get Lorente into a semblance of form uh, before Sun leaves. But um, on the whole, we, we should, quote-unquote, have enough uh, to beat them on the day. All right, next up, coming to you now, Jamie. Bit of a, a six-pointer here as you're going to be traveling to face Huddersfield. What do you think we'll see in this match? Yeah, this, this game's obviously massive for me. The, the main thing to take from today, I think, is that we need to follow it up. Um, I mentioned the Bournemouth game earlier, but that was touted at the time as a big turning point for our season. It was supposed to be the performance that was going to show that we can have another good season. We're not going to be concerned by relegation and it just didn't happen at all so we need to follow up that win Huddersfield's problems are obviously they can't score goals uh, Aaron Moyes out injured as well he's probably their best player, Matt Ryan's gone to the Asian Cup so it's a really good time to play them, they're particularly weak, they're on a terrible run of form, they've lost seven in a row I think it is off the top of my head um, but I'm sure their fans are looking at Burnley at home as a, as a real opportunity to get back to winning ways. They need a result to to stop themselves from being cut adrift at the bottom. So, like I say, classic six points of both teams, absolutely desperate for the points. Um, when they came to our place, they actually deserved more than the, the point that they got, I thought. We took the lead, but were fairly dreadful after that. And if anyone was going to go on and win it after Huddersfield equalised, it was certainly not going to be us. Um, so hopefully we've learned our lessons from that game. I think we've got more quality than them, um, even though our top goal scorer, joint top goal scorer, remains centre back James Tarkovsky. I think firepower <laughs> we probably have a bit more than them. So I wouldn't expect it to be a classic. I think it'll probably be quite gritty, classic sort of Lancashire Yorkshire derby, quite physical, probably ugly to watch. Um, but I think hopefully we're going to have enough to come through it and then it can be judged as a as a turning point and we can move on from fairly terrible first half of the season. If it goes back to how we've been recently and the defence is a shambles again, then I think we need to start talking about Sean Dyche's future again. All right, and then Sam, we'll wrap up with you. Uh, not exactly an easy trip to Stamford Bridge, a pretty tough back-to-back uh, pair of fixtures here for you. you. You have any hope heading into this one? Yeah, as you say, they're, they're two difficult uh, fixtures in a row. Um, but what is interesting is Hiles and Hill came out post-match today and said um, he heavily rotated his sides against Manchester City for the Chelsea game. So he obviously feels 
that there's a lot of uh, there's confidence to take into the game um, rather than the one against against Man City today. I think we can. Chelsea have been beatable this season. I think um, there's been times where they haven't really hit top gear as they're trying to still adapt to to Sari's style of play, um, and it's still still sort of progressing. And if you look at the result, uh, Leicester got a Stamford Bridge. I think Hasenhutl probably looks at that and thinks we can probably go there and, and get a similar result. Personally. It's, it's a difficult task you know they've got they've got a, a fantastic squad and they've got the ability to to mix it up and and they can play a nice football whilst also getting gritty results as you saw against crystal palace uh this weekend as well um they, they come away one nil winners at selhurst park um it's a, it's a difficult game as you say and it's it's hard to to try and build momentum when you've had um man city and then followed by chelsea away um and I think it probably highlights how how crucial that that loss to West Ham probably was uh, uh, prior to Man City because we got no points there, and it looks likely we might. It looks likely that we're not going to get anything away from the game, and we we'll probably find ourselves back in the bottom three, as you say. Burnley have got a, a good chance of picking up points against Huddersfield, and we're we're level on points at the moment, and we'll, we'll probably be below them. After after our match, so it's going to be difficult. But I think that the main problem for us at the moment is again no Hoiberg out for out for between four and five games because of this is his third band of the season already. Um, after seeing red, and then he accumulated too many yellow cards, and then saw red again against Man City. What we've got to do is do something we haven't been able to do all season, and that's be able to to be strong at the back, and also try. And, and put away chances, which is we which is something we have been able to do under under Hasenhutl. And as I said, he he rested players against Man City for the Chelsea game, so we'll see players come back in, such as Danny Ings and Stuart Armstrong, and we'll see Redmond from the from the start. So that gives gives me a little bit of confidence going in, knowing that they've they've had almost a week of of rest uh, and recuperation going into the game. But to be honest, I, I can't see Saints getting much out of it. All right, well, we will leave the show there as we are out of time. Thanks to both of you for joining. If there's anything you're working on or want to tell people where they can find you, now would be a good time. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks again for having me on. I've been Jamie Smith. I spot Burnley. As you should probably realize from the show that you've been listening to, you can follow me on at Jamie Smith Sports on Twitter. I don't just tweet about Burnley, promise. Yeah, and you can uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mr Sam E Cox. Um, we're writing all the time for for at Fresh Saints. Uh, with you can find us there on Twitter, and we've got a few articles coming up uh, based around the transfer window and and Ralph Hasenhutl's effect. So, if you want to read of of what I've just been saying, then keep your eyes peeled on at Fresh Saints on Twitter for for those pieces coming up. Yeah, and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. Uh, you can find my fantasy writings over at Goal and at ESPN.com slash fantasy uh, if you're interested in those things. Uh, also, we have a championship show on this uh, channel as well. And in theory, currently in stasis, a fantasy uh, show that will hopefully be coming back sometime in January. Uh, thanks again to the two of you, Sam. Fantastic on your debut. Jamie, fantastic as always. It was a pleasure chatting with you. And folks at home, we hope you keep listening. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.